0: "'and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. "'On the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes "'and saw the place from afar. "'Then Abraham said to his young men, "'Stay here with the donkey. "'I and the boy will go over there and worship "'and come back again to you. "'And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering "'and laid it on Isaac his son.' O Lord, our God, we thank you for your word and ask that we would see not only the truth of your word, but the fulfillment of your word in Christ Jesus so plain before our eyes, if we have been given eyes to see, which we pray indeed everyone will receive this day. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. One of the advantages of Easter is the chance to ask you a very direct question as we begin. Uh, What difference does the bodily resurrection of Christ mean for your daily Christian living? In other words, the very fact that Christ has been raised, how does that change your life as a Christian? How does that change the way you face a day? Change the way you face a trial. Change the way you go to sleep. What difference does it make between a Christian who would claim to be a Christian in terms of a historic belief of saying, well, my heart is with the church, versus a Christian who believes that, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who will believe? What difference does it really make? And as we turn to Genesis chapter 22, what we find is that the great issues of the Christian life are always plain and simple. Christianity is not a difficult religion. God is not out to confuse you. God is not out to make your life more complicated than it needs to be. You do a very good job of that yourself. The Christian life Not how are we saved, but the Christian life of how do we live as saved people is very simple. Will you continue to trust God and obey God? Will you trust and will you obey? And when you see this extraordinary story before you, you should understand a number of things. The first of which was summed up by Matthew Henry and something I read this week that struck me as quite appropriate for us to consider. He said, Extraordinary afflictions are not always the punishment of extraordinary sins. They may indeed be that, by the way. You can do something really stupid and pay for it. But, sometimes the trial of extraordinary graces, extraordinary afflictions are sometimes the trial of extraordinary graces. If God is going to give you the gift of faith, a miraculous gift, a supernatural gift, a gift that you can't conjure up yourself, but a gift he gives to you so that you can believe all that he has said concerning who he is and who Christ is, if God gives you such a gift, should he not put that gift to work? If God gives you such love, a gift from heaven, should He not put that gift to work? If God gives you hope, should He not provide for you a life in which your hope is put to work? And I think the answer is an obvious yes. If the graces of faith, hope, and love are so precious, and indeed they are, should you not then be given a life by God in which those graces are going to manifest themselves in some tangible way? or would you like to keep your little faith and love and hope wrapped up in a tight little ball so that you can simply say on Easter my heart is with the church this is an important time of year for christians and then you can say happy vesaki day to others and you can say happy ramadan and you can you know join in the chorus of praise for everyone's world religion or will you as a Christian, believe that there is something profound and distinct with the belief that changes everything about your life. And I think we will see that this morning in Abraham. Now, I do want to ask you another question besides what difference does the resurrection make in your life? The next question is this. Would you want God to speak to you tomorrow morning if you knew for certain that it would be God who is speaking to you? Let's just remove from the side people who claim that God has little conversations with them. We're not going to go there. We're not going to talk about what accent he has or whether there's a loud voice or a quiet whisper, or whether your heart just felt really melted one day and you say it's the Lord. We won't go there but you knew that God is going to speak to you, you may say before having read Genesis chapter 22, yes, I would very much like to hear from God. That would be most interesting. I wonder what He would say to me. But then you read Genesis chapter 22 and you think, hang on now. Because in the story of Genesis chapter 22, if you were to ask Abraham, would you like to hear from the Lord, the everlasting God? The God who provides. The God who has promised. Abraham might say, yes, I would like to hear from the Lord. And Abraham does hear from the Lord. And what does the Lord say to Abraham? The Lord says to Abraham, the last thing that Abraham would ever want to hear from the Lord. Do you want God to speak to you? Are you prepared for God to speak to you in such a way that it would be the last words you would ever want to hear from God? Because that's what happens. Abraham, here I am. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Now I want you to just... Zero in on these words. God doesn't want there to be any mistaking who this son is. But he also doesn't want us to be unaware of the fact that Abraham loves his son. And I want you to also understand that this is not a cold, distant recollection of facts. You are meant to be moved to some extent by the language here. The emphasis, the repetition, the use of son ten times just in this narrative is meant to draw out from you the ordeal that is going on here and Abraham had just experienced one of the greatest joys in the previous chapter chapter 21 Sarah gave him a son God's promise was fulfilled everything God said turned out to be true Abraham could really trust God and now God says take your son your only son Isaac whom you love why does Abraham need to be told that he loves his son because God wants them to know how difficult this trial is going to be. When He says, "Go to the land of Moriah and what? And offer Him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you." Now, my friends, this is this is not a, a Genesis twenty-two. Ah, a nice passage. This is horrifying. The father of the faithful is being asked to become the monster of all fathers. He's being asked to sacrifice his son. He's being asked to kill, as it were, the promise that God had given to him, that through your offspring all nations will be blessed. And yet it's the one who made the promise to him, namely God, who is now seemingly taking away that promise by asking him to kill his only son whom he loves. And you see, if you go back to chapter 12, Abraham had left his father. He had left his kinsmen. He had left those whom he loved. And he had proven to God that he loves God more than his own father. But what do you think might take a little more love? Proving to God that you love God more than your own child. So the trial is heightened from chapter 12, not lessened. Does he love God more than his only son? Not just his family, not just his father. And Abraham had been put through various trials, and he had experienced the grace of God. But would this be too much for him in the end? But you see, what God wanted from Abraham was not so much Isaac's death, but Abraham's trust. That's what God wants from Abraham. And you see Abraham's obedience. He rose early in the morning. He didn't like Luther before the Roman Catholic authorities say, I need more time to consider this and come back 24 hours later. He didn't plot alternative circumstances and say, you know what? I may have misheard surely you meant Ishmael. Now, I don't really want to kill Ishmael, but if you give me a choice, Ishmael or Isaac, I'm going to kill Ishmael. And he doesn't debate with God like he had done where he pleads over Lot and Sodom and has a debate with God. We don't read of him debating. We don't read of him plotting alternative circumstances. We don't see him asking for more time. We see Abraham waking up early in the morning and obeying God. And he takes two young men with him and his son Isaac. You wonder why did he take two young men with him? So that every matter may be established by two or three witnesses. This is a public trial as much as it is a personal trial. And he goes and sees the place from afar in verse 4 and then Abraham says to the young men, stay here with the donkey because I am and the boy. This is only something that I can do with my son. We will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham is going to sacrifice, but he calls it going to worship. And you see, all true worship will always involve some degree of sacrifice. There is no true worship where there is no sacrifice. And that Manifest itself in a whole number of levels, even in terms of the Christian life. Offer your bodies as what? Living sacrifices. Everything about what we do as Christian involves sacrifice, but especially worship. Worship isn't just meant to tickle your ears and make you feel good and you come in and you're entertained and you leave and you feel like, well, that was just so enjoyable. There's a sense in which true biblical worship is going to actually be difficult for you. Because you're a sinner. And churches spend their entire existence figuring out how they can make a worship service purely enjoyable. The pastor, you know, I'd, I was listening to Van Morrison, uh, his hymns to the silence, Don't Start Judging Me, his good Christian music on the way to church with my father. You know, some of these guys, they come in and they, they're raised up, you know, all of a sudden there's smoke and they, they're actually just there and music comes on and, and it's just a great time. But true worship is sacrificial. I want you to bleed sitting here. Bleed in terms of the sacrifice where you've got to listen to a prayer that isn't 10 seconds long. One of my son, Josh, his friend, a very good friend of his, and he, he knows stats on everything. You know, any NBA game, he's like, did you know that in 90, I'm like, "Whoa, well, Jaden, calm down, brother." But one time, actually, it got to our church. He says, you know the first time I came to your church, you prayed for ten minutes. <laughs> ten. Now He struggles with paying attention, but there's something about true biblical worship. It's going to require something of you. You know, a bit of effort. A bit of focus. A bit of knowing that your mind is prone to wander, but bringing it back to know that you need to have real dealings with God. Abraham says, we will go and worship. We will go and sacrifice. He could have said one or the other. It's the same thing. And come back again to you. So he takes the wood of the burnt offering and he lays it on Isaac, his son. Now, if you can't see here now how Isaac is a Christ figure. I'm not sure what else I can say to you except it's just that obvious. As Jesus carried his cross, so Isaac is carrying the wood to his own destruction. And Abraham has the fire and the knife and they go, both of them together. The way in which the text just emphasizes things again and again. They are together. They are going to come back. He loves him. His son, his son... It's simple the language there's nothing complex about it but the way in which the Hebrew comes together it's it's really quite beautiful because notice when they speak to each other in verse 7 Isaac said to his father Abraham here's the conversation it begins with my father and what does it end with my son my father and he said here I am my son my father, my son, take your son whom you love. And I think verse 7 is one of the more harrowing verses in all of God's word. Imagine having to be Isaac and say this Behold, the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb? He knows what's happening. A sacrifice is going to take place. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Where is it, Father? Where is the lamb that you're going to sacrifice? And yet, He is that lamb. And Abraham tells him, God will provide for Himself the lamb for a burnt offering, My Son. You see again, what words end the conversation? My son. My father, my son. My father, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And Abraham is about to lose his child. He builds the altar, lays the wood, and he binds Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Isaac was not a little child, And this speaks as much, I think, to Isaac's faith and obedience as it does to Abraham's. And you wonder who comes out with the greater faith and obedience, and we don't need to answer that question except to say that the text doesn't give us the details except the fact of the matter that Isaac is placed on the altar. Now, you have to understand that God's timing is always, always perfect. God doesn't make a saint A child of his suffer for any longer than he intends for them to suffer. He doesn't draw out a trial for a minute longer than it needs to be drawn out. But he also doesn't cut it shorter than it needs to be. So Abraham reaches out his hand. He reaches out his hand towards his son and takes the knife to slaughter him. But... You know that sermon, it's quite famous. Lloyd-Jones preached on Ephesians, but God. You can Look it up. Here's another, but God. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Now, if the last words in the world that Abraham would ever have wanted to hear from God would be the verse that we see In verse 2, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice him on the place where I tell you, what do you think the first words are that you would ever want to hear from God? In this instance, here they are. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. Don't even touch him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. I can't even imagine the emotions that Abraham and Isaac were going through together. You know, they say there's a word for the loss of a spouse. And they say there is a word for a child losing a parent. But a parent losing a child is so unnatural in the ordinary scheme of things that there isn't really a word for it. And God intervenes. And the words that Abraham didn't suspect were coming, came to him. And he says, now I know that you fear God. Do you see something else? That worship and sacrifice are essentially the same thing? The life of faith and the life of obedience is the same thing as fearing God. Do you want to know? What it is to live a life of faith? It's to fear God. Do you know what it is to fear God? It's to trust God. Do you know what it is to trust God? It's to live in obedience to God. Do you know what it is to live in obedience to God? It's to offer your body as a living sacrifice. Do you know what it is to live your body as a sacrifice? It's to worship God. Basic concepts. Nothing difficult. Except the basic concepts are the most difficult. Now I know. Now I know. And Abraham received his son back. You know, in 1922, something significant happened in Canada. If you are a history buff, you may know the answer. If you're a medical history buff, you definitely will know the answer. But at the University of Toronto, they began the use of insulin for those who were diabetic. And uh, Leonard Thompson, I think he was a 14-year-old, was the first to receive uh, insulin for uh, his diabetes. And what would happen to these young children in these hospitals at this time is that they would, many of them, slip into a comatose state. Uh, One reason was not only because of what was happening because of diabetes, but their, their general intake of calories each day was as low as 350 calories which really isn't enough to survive on and so they would fall into a coma and parents would have to come in knowing that their child up until this point would not survive you would go in and you would watch your child die and then insulin was discovered And these heroic doctors who actually sold the patent for one dollar so that it could be distributed far and wide came in and they would give insulin to these children. And all of a sudden, slowly but surely, they would awaken from this coma and they would slowly but surely be able to eat and they would be able to function in a way that brought joy and hope. And you can imagine what it would be like in that room for all of a sudden this cure comes in of sorts and they received their child back from the dead. Now that was based upon a medical miracle so to speak. But what Abraham goes through is actually based on something even greater and that is trust in God. And because it's based on something greater, trust in God, the promise will be even greater. You see, in verse 5, if we just go back to verse 5, I want us to understand something. That the ESV clouds this just a little bit. And I think the NIV probably gets closer to what is exactly going on. But he says, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And the NIV heightens the we will come again to you. Abraham went to go and sacrifice his son. And the text tells us that he drew out his hand with the knife to sacrifice him so that we would be left in no doubt that he was planning to do exactly what God had called him to do. But the question is, why does he say so early on, we will come back? Why does he say that? And the answer we get is in the book of Hebrews. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his son. What promise was he a recipient of? That through Isaac, all the families of the earth would be blessed. So the author of Hebrews is drawing out how utterly against Christ, common sense and reason this was that he was in the act of offering up his son to whom he'd received the promises that through this son, everyone would be blessed. And then verse 19, he considered. Abraham went to worship God and he went to worship a God that he considered was able even to raise him from the dead from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. What difference does the resurrection make in your life? That was the first question. And here's the answer. The resurrection means that you can wake up in the morning and you can face anything that this world hurls at you. The resurrection means that if you believe God, there is nothing in this world that you cannot deal with. Abraham dealt with the worst and his faith gave him the best. Abraham dealt with the last things he wanted to hear, but his faith gave him the first things that he wanted to hear, that his son figuratively speaking, was received back. And as soon as that angel of the Lord said to Abraham, 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 do not lay a hand on the boy. What did that mean for the angel of the Lord? That he would one day be placed upon that altar. And when the angel of the Lord went to the altar, there would be no angel of the Lord to stop the crucifixion. That's what it meant. That voice that anyone would want to hear right before a crucifixion turned into the voice of, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Isaac didn't need to say that. But Christ did. And in a certain sense, the mercies of god i think one day we're going to look back at all of the resurrections that happened in our lives and it's going to be the godly and the godless who received resurrection after resurrection godless people who were saved from death because of god's mercy whether it was an illness whether it was a car accident whether it was this that or the other god preserving and preserving and preserving why so that they might believe in the one who has the power over death the one who who is the resurrection and the life. The one who says come to me. And receive life. And how many resurrections have you had in your life. Where you should have been dead. Where maybe you even deserved to die. But God preserved you. Again and again and again, but ultimately none of that will matter unless God preserves you through the angel of the Lord who says when you go to that altar of God's justice, no, do not lay a hand on that person because I went to Calvary for them and I went to the grave for them and I rose again from the dead for them. Do not lay a hand on you or you or you because Christ let the hand of God fall upon him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your promise of resurrection, of life, so that it doesn't actually matter in a sense what we face today, tomorrow, weeks from now, months from now, years from now, decades, but that we believe that God is able to raise the dead and has done so through Jesus Christ already, the first fruits of them who will believe. We pray that we will believe and we will worship. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.